Welcome to Healthy Wealthy You, where we'll continue to explore all aspects of functional medicine and good health. We'll help you find the tools to become the best version of yourself. Now, here is your host, Dr. Camille Vardy. Welcome back to Healthy Wealthy You. This is Dr. Camille. You know that I love how our minds work. Our brains are one of the most powerful forces in the world and one of the most overlooked. When we truly harness our mind's power, we can create incredible change in our lives. So I love looking deeply at what drives us. I started to feel curious about curiosity. It's something that we all have, but it's not something we think about much. It's something in the background, like the air we breathe, but we couldn't live life without it. And it certainly makes life more interesting. Curiosity is actually essential to life, to survival, because curiosity drives learning. Most creatures have a certain amount of curiosity just so that we can figure out how to survive in the world. The relationship between curiosity and learning is key because if we understand curiosity, we can also understand how to enhance learning in real and meaningful ways. It's said that curiosity is one of the most important leadership skills. It drives transformation and growth. Most of the breakthrough discoveries and remarkable inventions throughout history are the result of curiosity. I've invited one of the most curious people I know to the show today. I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. Anne McCormick. She's a pioneer educator, software designer, entrepreneur, and advisor in the field of education for more than 50 years. She founded The Learning Company, helped to design the reading software Reader Rabbit and Rocky's Boots. She was one of the first people to em emphasize the importance of fun and the interactive experience in learning software. More recently, she was the lead designer for ReaderBee, an award-winning app for reading. She's been a consultant in education and technology to the governments of 15 countries. She demonstrated her software to officials from the US Library of Congress and the Special Office of the President, from members of the British Parliament, and at a conference at the Congress of the Latin Americas in Sao Paulo, as well as for a leader at the Ministry of Education from Beijing. Her software has been used throughout the world. Welcome, Dr. McCormick. Hello, Camille, thank you for inviting me. I love this topic because I remain curious about so many things. I love it when we find out that some new information calls everything we know into question, which keeps things lively. So what is curiosity? What can you tell us about curiosity and why does it matter? And what drives curiosity? Curiosity, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, is a strong desire to learn or know something. Two kinds of curiosity have been studied. Innate curiosity, what we are born with, is what is natural inside us. We are driven by survival. Am I safe? What's that noise? Those things are immediate to our senses. 
And there are elaborations like, what can I eat? Where can I find it? How can I get it? Even an animal or a baby has this kind of curiosity. I think we've all seen it. As our brains grow and evolve, knowledge becomes its own pleasure. Curiosity is the drive for knowledge for its own sake. That's the second kind of curiosity. One of the leading theorists who first looked into the nuances of curiosity is British psychologist Daniel Berlin, who taught at Yale and at Boston University, as well as many other universities around the world. He identified several variables that help to define and drive curiosity. One is physical intensity. There's a reward pathway created by the neurotransmitters, dopamine, serotonin, as well as opioids. They give us the intellectual zest for learning and are key to curiosity. How intensely our learning promotes these chemicals is key to our further pursuit of curiosity. To stay curious, we need to feel aroused so that our brains release a little bit of cortisol, but not too wildly aroused so that we become overwhelmed and back off. We also can't be too bored or our brains become less active. We are curious when we are seeking new information and we have emotional reactions to that information. Next is motivation and relevance. The topic is meaningful to the person. We go from survival, where is food, to how do I get it easier and faster? This curiosity spurred agriculture and entire industries related to food commerce. We're always evolving in ways to do things better. And in ancient times, it was not a matter of a neurochemical reward, but real ones. As we learn new methods of cultivating and preserving food, we had a steady and ample supply of food. That was a tremendously motivating reward. Next is novelty. We enjoy surprises. We like things that are new and unusual. Isn't that true? We get satisfaction from a change in our thinking. We like the incongruence of a situation. We like when unexpected things happen, when the situation is not what we anticipated and we need to figure something out. Humor can play a role too. Kids just love jokes, especially there when there is an element of surprise or incongruence to it. That's what makes it funny. Another variable is uncertainty. We like the feeling of making a prediction and seeing if we are correct. This drives scientists who can spend a lifetime following their curiosity. It's a special quality to not know the answer and be open to new discoveries. Resolving uncertainty is the essence of the scientific method. Next, Berlin looked at complexity. It needs to be the right level of complexity. Too little and we lose interest. Too much and it becomes stressful and we avoid the challenge. Psychologists call this the Goldilocks effect. The porridge is not too hot, not too cold. It's just right. Likewise, the challenge needs to be just right. Too easy and we're bored. If it's too hard and we are overwhelmed, we can even shut down and feel traumatized. Berlin also looked at conflict. We like challenges. We like overcoming adversity as long as it's not excessive or overwhelming. It forces us to be clever. We like to be clever, don't we? It forces (laughs) us to be creative in order to solve problems. So how can we use these ideas to enhance learning? Berlin discussed the importance of physical intensity in learning, and that's still true. But we live in a very different world than when he pioneered his theories theories in the 1960s. Now we live in a world saturated with neurochemical stimulants such as video games and social media. 
So it is important to have the right level of stimulation. Again, the Goldilocks principle. You know, engaging those neurotransmitters is so important. One of my most treasured memories as a young child was when I first started to read and my father gave me a notebook and told me to write down any words that I came across that I didn't know. Then we would sit down together and look up the words. Ah, time with daddy. It was one of the highlights of my week. And it set me up with a love of language and learning through my whole life. It was one of the best gifts that I ever received from him. And there was such a huge incentive for me to read more, find more words, because the more words I found, the more time there was with daddy. And that is something that is underappreciated about learning, that small changes, especially early in life, can steer a child in a completely different and wonderful direction. Our schools are often overwhelmed. Parents are overwhelmed. Resources are scarce. But a single moment, a single lesson, a single shift in approach can make a difference. And being overwhelmed is such a key factor, too, when it comes to neurotransmitters. Um, If we're exhausted, if we're burned out, and our cortisol levels are low, we might not be producing the dopamine we need to feel that kind of charge that I felt with my dad. And if we're not sleeping, if we're staying up too late with the devices on, we might have low serotonin levels. So we might not get the same level of brain reward from our curiosity and our learning. We don't get the physical intensity, the pleasure that you were just describing. Sometimes we're just too darn tired to be curious. Can you talk a little bit more about how to enhance motivation? We spoke about the motivation of survival and how that engages our innate curiosity. The issue becomes that when we live in a society of abundance, when the motivation of survival is no longer an issue, where do we get our motivation? That is an ongoing question in both education and in business. You know, yes, in a previous podcast, um, I had discussed Maslow's hierarchy of needs how we move from the physiological needs of safety, food, water, and shelter to a sense of belonging, of community, and then on to a desire for self-esteem, the respect of others, and then ultimately to the self-actualization that comes from the fulfillment of our life's purpose. And I think curiosity and its partner creativity is essential to that. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of the saying that the two best days of our lives are the day we're born and then the day that we realize why. Woo, that's really, really nice. Yes, and another popular idea is the theory of expectancy from Broom, Lawler, and Porter. They theorize that to maintain motivation, we need three things. We need an expectation of impact, that increased effort will matter. Part of that is having the tools we need to accomplish our goal, skills, materials, time, information, guidance, and support from others. Secondly, we need to trust the outcome. We need to understand that the rules of the game, and we need to trust that there will be benefit to following the rules and pursuing the outcome. We need to feel there is transparency in the process. Third, the goal needs to be something we actually want. Often that's not thought about 
grownups <laughs> for children. <laughs> Unfortunately, for a child, this might mean choosing their own topic with an array of possibilities offered. For example, in a unit in a unit about Greece in a school where I worked, the children could create a character who was a god, and one child uh, had a giant ostrich that she turned into a dancing goddess. It was very funny. It was a puppet. It was my daughter, so I remember. Um, another would write a newspaper article about an event in ancient Greece. The children held an election for the gods. One election poster I saw on the wall said, don't vote for Hades. You know what he did the last time. He created <laughs> hell. <laughs> All choices were within the scope of the topic, Greece. But children had agency in choosing what to elaborate on, and they did this eagerly. This might apply to adults in a business setting. We need to understand what a person values. A promotion might, might not be a motivator if it means more time away from family or more grueling demands. We need to be able to assess and understand that. You know, you're really talking about the Goldilocks principle again. Um, there's certainly a large segment of society that feels a disconnect between actions and outcome. Um, a person can work two jobs and still not be able to support their family. In that situation, it's hard to feel motivation and hope, especially if that persists for years. Um, or there might be people who might feel that they get no praise no matter what they do. Um, and others have too much handed to them, and they feel little motivation to find their purpose, to find that self-actualization. It's finding the middle ground. What would you suggest to increase novelty? First, we need to realize that there's too much predictability in many classrooms today because textbooks are written so that they satisfy every contingent of political correctness and fascinating features of civilization are left out. They just aren't talked about even if they're true. A good teacher can add new stories, art, philosophical ideas, working across topics so that novelty is assured. The finest schools that I have seen encourage teachers to teach across topics such as art, music, social studies, and math, all in the same class. It's a project, not just open the book, turn to page 45, and read the next paragraph. Examples that stand out for me are the long projects carried out at the Nueva School. Similar ones are carried out at the Synapse School, and both of them are in the Bay Area. When my daughter was in middle school, the teachers of all subjects collaborated and offered Japan studies. They did this for a whole year, and my daughter made maps from many perspectives. I think she had to make 13 maps to understand the social geography and the physical geography of Japan and how those interacted. She acted in a kabuki play where she got to dress up as an empress. She taught me the power walk she got to use. <laughs> she learned Japanese language. She studied the history of Japan. Then the whole class traveled to Japan and lived with a Japanese family that did not speak English. So they really had a motivation to learn to speak Japanese. The idea was to learn about a culture not based in Europe, and they became immersed in it. The work was challenging, but not impossible. And there was tremendous novelty as they looked at many aspects of Japan and, the, and its culture over time. Each child was assigned a topic on which to become an expert. The children slept in, at a temple in Japan. They bathed in Japanese baths. They found their way around Tokyo to eat, like, go children, find food. 
<laughs> and they were safe there, which was quite wonderful. Uh, the children also visited Kyoto, where they saw ancient Japan, and they were very saddened when they visited uh, Nagasaki. They had their curiosity piqued and satisfied through food, conversation, thought, and deep human experience. My daughter still remembers the Japanese dad 40 years ago who looked out for her at her homestay. There was a balance that included great complexity and great novelty, but also a lot of support. In many ways, novelty and complexity go hand in hand. It's the multifaceted approach that allows for both and lets their curiosity soar wherever they care to go. That kind of cross-topic learning brings in the idea of incongruence as well. We like when unexpected things happen, when the situation is not what we anticipated and we need to figure something out. These kids looked forward to school every day because they never knew what to expect. Every day brought a new adventure. You know what happened in the summer? He, they didn't want to stop coming to school. They loved Love that. Yeah. Now I realize that not, that not every school can fly their kids to Japan. That was a very special experimental situation that my daughter had available because of my background as an educator. But within every situation, there are ways to introduce these concepts. The idea of cross-topic learning, the, I've heard of it in many schools, the idea of planning surprises and creating novelty, the idea of creating appropriate challenges. And this also means shifting our view of education in this country, shifting the way we value education. Teachers are deeply undervalued and overworked, and that is a systemic flaw. Part of that is, is sourced in our uh, funding schools from the neighborhood income. So poor school neighborhoods have poor schools. That's not true in some companies like Finland, where if you are in the northernmost part of the country in a very poverty-stricken area, People in Helsinki aren't going to get a computer till you have a record player like they have. It's all fair. And then they'll all get the next uh, wonderful thing together. That it's, would transform our whole society. It really would. And it, it might feel like it slows us down. I was surprised, like, well, can't you have a garage sale? No, <laughs> because it's it's frowned upon to, to stand out ahead of others. Mm. Um, and there's so much harmony in that situation. Also, astonishing creativity. It's, it's not, um, the art is wonderful and very touching. It's difficult for teachers to bring that creativity to the classroom when they are often deeply exhausted and barely making ends meet. And also they're expected, I remember as a young teacher, I was expected to be on a certain page. Like I was taught in teacher education to look at the book, divide up how many pages there are and quote, cover the material. Uh, covering a certain number of pages, not thinking about whether the children were getting it at all. And I had five children who could barely spell their names and they'd failed four times by fifth grade. So we were 13 years old in fifth grade and they didn't have a chance to understand it if I taught that way. So of course I didn't. And, and I, we even impose that in homeschooling. Yes, we do. I, I do homeschooling reports and I have to say what how we covered the material 28 hours a week. <laughs> I met with my grandson's teacher and she said, this is the most unusual education I've seen a child get. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, 
I loved it when I told him we were going to study the history of the human race starting in Paleolithic times. He said, I want to go back further to the dinosaurs. No, I want to go back to when the world started. He was really curious. So we read about astrophysics for young people. It was so much fun. I learned all kinds of things. And I told him, Soren, I need you to teach me because I never studied black, dark matter and dark energy and all these things that Neil deGrasse Tyson talks about. So he'd say, I'm teaching you, Grandma. And I said, I know you are. Thank goodness. <laughs> well, his curiosity was really played out. It was not an easy book. He's nine. And it's sort of for middle school kids. And it's not easy for anybody. One of the other pieces of a concern in public education is the systemic emphasis on standardized testing. The data on the impact that on kids' creativity and the environment in the classroom is fairly clear at this point. There's a wonderful TED video that you can find about this. I'll put it in the links. Um, now, um, Berlin mentioned complexity. Can you talk more about how that plays out? Yes. My, one of my eighth grade students spent a year studying the life and times of architect I.M. Pei, the architect who designed the glass pyramid outside the Louvre in Paris. Each student took on a project designing a building themselves. Tristan, my student, who had difficulty earlier in his life, designed a home for handicapped people who were homeless in the Mission District of San Francisco. Wow. Tristan had to figure out many aspects of the project to accomplish a home for handicapped people. It's hard enough to design a home. And it's not something that we would normally expect from an eighth grader. But his past experiences were a high motivation for him and inspired him to solve problems at a greater level of complexity. And it's so true that some of our greatest challenges become some of our greatest inspirations. And that is where Berlin even considered conflict to be an asset. Conflict, conflict resolution and negotiation is an enormous field of study. Yes, we've even done a couple of podcasts here on that subject. I find it fascinating. We can help kids tolerate uncertainty, adapt to new situations, cultivate their inquiring minds, and notice when they feel alive because they are curious. As their knowledge grows, they live a happier life. I know that I say, how do you feel about that? Instead of saying, good for you, which is my judgment, I say, how do you feel? And they can notice their own feelings, which is very valuable to them. Mm -hmm. And I talked about teaching children about the history of the world. Starting in Paleolithic times, we read a story about how a boy tamed a wolf by sharing his food, and gradually the wolf became his pet, the first dog. Now, the idea of a first dog, you kind of go, what? Because we're so used to dogs. These stories are novel because life was so different then, but having a dog is familiar. It's that balance. Thinking of a time you'd, when you'd have to get to know a wolf to have a dog is surprising. It's a novelty. We read another story about how a child saw a huge bison on a walk outside the cave, but the adults didn't believe him. He dreamt of the bison at night. He woke up and picked up a stick, burned to charcoal at the end, and drew the bison on the wall of the cave. No one had drawn on the cave walls before. His father, when he saw the bison, took out his weapon and tried to kill it, <laughs> which is kind of wild. And that too, you go, what? <laughs> This event is not within the daily life of a child, but it evokes interest because it's surprising. But children know about not being listened to, about dreams, and about trying new things. So there's a blend of the curious and the new. 
It's really worth taking on and cultivating these qualities in children and in ourselves. Truly. Let's take a break here and we'll be right back with more with Dr. Ann McCormick and the subject of curiosity. When we come back, we'll see how to cultivate this in our children. Healthy Wealthy You will help you find the tools to become the best version of yourself. We'll explore all aspects of well-being, nutrition, lifestyle, fitness, mental health, relationships, family, work, finances. It's you living your best life. No matter what your current health or life obstacles, we want to help you cross that bridge to your new life. Our experience with food, nutrition, supplements, functional medicine, specific health issues, and every aspect of what it means to be truly healthy will provide something for every level of interest, bringing new twists on what you already know. We'll help you figure out why you haven't achieved your goals and learn strategies to help you create a personal approach that finally works for you. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Healthy Wealthy You. If you have questions for Dr. Camille or her guests, feel free to join us on the show at 866-472-5792. That's 866-472-5792. Now, back to the show with Dr. Camille. Welcome back to Healthy Wealthy You. We're speaking today with Dr. Ann McCormick, an educator, software designer, and global consultant in the field of education. And we're talking about curiosity and its role in learning. Dr. McCormick, how do we see curiosity in babies? What's happening in their brains? To a little baby, almost everything is new. They want to explore. What is this bright, shiny thing dangling over my crib? A famous researcher, Jean Piaget, said that babies are constantly trying to make sense of their reality. They are like little scientists developing hypotheses and testing them and making conclusions. In learning, we are actually generating new connections in the brain. And did you know that if children don't use part of their brain, it's just Uh, trimmed away. So we start with a whole lot of neurons, safer language. And unless we learn multiple languages, those extra parts of our brain are just trimmed. They're gone and they're not coming back. So the nerve cells have branches called dendrites. And as we learn, the nerve cells create new branches that allow the nerve impulses to travel from one nerve to the next. That's why toddlers like to have things repeated over and over. It helps them develop these new brain connections. You know how they like to hear good night moon over and over and over? (laughs) Children can take in a tremendous amount of information. They learn to walk and talk by themselves, really. They're curious about everything, but they make conclusions that are wrong, too. There's something called naive learning of the young child. It was defined by Howard Gardner at Harvard, and it involves correcting misconceptions. A child might conclude this If they're cold, their teddy bear is cold too. So they put a sweater on the teddy bear and think it will keep the teddy bear warm. Over time, children correct these misconceptions. But many conceptions we have are based on these early thoughts. 
that seem obvious from our sensory experiences in the world, but which prove faulty when we gain new understandings. Making most of the toddler phase and taking the time to answer their questions promotes further curiosity and sets them up as lifetime learners. If a child isn't asked, isn't listened to and doesn't hear any answers to his questions, he stops asking and he really doesn't have as active a brain. It's one of the most precious gifts we can give our children and our communities to ask and answer questions and extend on the questions. And they ask wonderful questions like, what makes rainbows? And where do the stars go during the day? I mean, I love those questions. They're so precious. I love them too. It's one of my favorite things in life is to have little children asking questions. (laughs) So how can we keep curiosity alive in children? First, children readily keep curiosity alive in themselves. When my daughter was five, she visited a kindergarten class at Nueva School that was doing a six-week project about sticks. Each child brought a stick to share every morning. After a while, the children started bringing different kinds of sticks, a stick in the mud, a stick of butter, a yardstick, a grandparent's walking strip from Mount Fuji. They got beyond just bringing a little stick. My daughter looked for a stick after a storm in our redwood forest and chose a 10-foot-long stick that I thought was too long to bring in the car. I said, really, that's a branch, not a stick. (laughs) (laughs) But she was determined, and I, I put the stick diagonally in the car. It stuck out of the window, and I drove to school on the right side of the freeway all the way to the school. I was embarrassed when my little girl walked to school carrying this stick that was much bigger than she was. Eight years later, her kindergarten teacher, Patty, asked me, do you know why Sarah got admitted to Nueva? I said, no, I have no idea. I am curious. Patty said, because of that big stick she brought to share, we knew she was a Nueva kid. It was hard to get into that school. There might be 300 children applying for a couple spaces. So I was glad I went with my daughter's choice. And by the way, some of you may wonder how we could do a six-week project about sticks but that project choice was no accident. Think of all the things that prehistoric people had to figure out about sticks to survive. It was firewood. It was a digging tool. It could poke a hole in something. It could help build a shelter. It could be a weapon and so much more. And the fact that each child thought of a new stick every day for six weeks was significant. The ability to see a single object in many ways is a tremendous learning experience in terms of curiosity and creativity. We can help our children by modeling curiosity ourselves. We can give good brief answers to children's questions so that they feel satisfied. We can also branch out to new questions and keep engaging a topic together. We can provide natural experiences, playing in nature, being in joyous exploration is what one researcher called it. We can listen, observe, and talk about what other people are thinking and doing, developing social curiosity which is what is going on with other people. Then children become kind and generous. We can notice when children tolerate the stress of not knowing something so that they gain knowledge, they start feeling competent, autonomous, and a sense of belonging. Have you heard of a young child say, I did it myself? And that can last and provide long-term satisfaction. This is an evolution in the development of curiosity as we move on from innate curiosity intended for the purpose of survival to curiosity for its own sake, for the intrinsic pleasure that we get from learning. 
We get a blast of dopamine, our pleasure neurotransmitter, when we achieve understanding of a concept. And that drives other receptors in the brain uh, that have to do with memory as well. You can see the delight on a child's face when they learn a new concept or master a new skill. It's really wonderful. Hmm. What about curiosity as it evolves in the teen years? In the teen years, young people are curious how to establish their identity to a great extent. They have to challenge the status quo. It's going to be very, very annoying <laughs> if you're the parent, but they have to do it. <laughs> they might seek novelty and conflict to the point of overstimulation and thrill-seeking. They need to find the sweet spot between coping with boredom, which they experience a lot, they think, so they'll do anything to boost arousal, to find specific curiosity, trying to reduce too much stimulation by focusing on repetitive behaviors. It's especially important to provide opportunities for curiosity in teens in small towns. It's too easy these days for them to feel limited opportunity for new things so they can rely on the internet more for stimulation. This is true of city kids alone after school too. It's really pretty sad. An example I enjoy happened recently at the Synapse School in Menlo Park, California. The middle school children study the physics of movement in the human body, such as angular momentum in physics class. And you see them in class, it's a regular class. Then they go to the maker lab where they have a lot of building tools for cutting wood and, and putting things together and a lot of space. And they built a challenging obstacle course that they got to design themselves. It wasn't like anybody else's, though it had elements of other people's. That involved building structures to hang rings, to swing on, and ramps to traverse, applying the physics to their own physical movement. One of the teachers at the school is an American Ninja Warrior on TV, using an obstacle course that gave Synapse kids a model that they could learn from. And they tested their limits physically as well as learning physics so they won't forget. It was fun to see their comment on what that was like and what it would be like not to be able to build things to go with that unit. Uh, there's a YouTube video on my website uh, that I'll share about that. Curiosity doesn't have to come by itself. Teachers can set up situations that push the edges of what children can do and support them in persisting and accepting mistakes. You, don't you know, accepting mistakes is such a huge part of curiosity. We, we need to be able to get out of our own way. Yes. And I think if kids are just taught there's one answer and they give that one answer and feel proud of themselves, they don't realize that there's often a lot of answers. And one of my favorite teachers, Mary Laycock, a math specialist, would say daily, children, is it okay if we make mistakes? And they would chant together with glee, yes, because <laughs> that's how we learn. And they'd all laugh oh. together and everybody loved her. Oh, she sounds fabulous. He really well, loved Let's take another break here. And when we come back, we'll continue our discussion with Dr. Ann McCormick. Healthy Wealthy You will help you find the tools to become the best version of yourself. 
We'll explore all aspects of well-being, nutrition, lifestyle, fitness, mental health, relationships, family, work, finances. It's you living your best life. No matter what your current health or life obstacles, we want to help you cross that bridge to your new life. Our experience with food, nutrition, supplements, functional medicine, specific health issues, and every aspect of what it means to be truly healthy will provide something for every level of interest, bringing new twists on what you already know. We'll help you figure out why you haven't achieved your goals and learn strategies to help you create a personal approach that finally works for you. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Healthy Wealthy You. If you have questions for Dr. Camille or her guests, feel free to join us on the show at 866-472-5792. That's 866-472-5792. Now, back to the show with Dr. Camille. Welcome back to Healthy Wealthy You. We're here with Dr. Ann McCormick talking about curiosity and its role in learning. Um, Dr. McCormick, what happens to curiosity in schools and how can we do better? Schools often focus on achievement, which is certainly understandable in a culture where 70% of fourth graders are reading below grade level. Do you know what that means? They're functionally illiterate. That means they can't read much of anything. And it's really, really high. It never has been that bad. Wow, 70%. And I know the pandemic had a little bit to do with that. Oh, yes, it did. Um, And maybe a lot to do with that. Yeah. And I've read recently that many schools are taking on science-based reading, which includes phonics, not just uh, guessing at words from pictures and stuff that became popular. It really doesn't work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, some schools require kids to do repetitive tasks with little meaning for them, leading to frustration. When nothing seems new and there's no reason to be curious, it's hard to pay attention. And if you're tuned out and just going through the motions, la, 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 you might be like a good little girl, but you aren't necessarily learning much, especially well, anything that lasts. And it's hard for a child that young to just sit still all day. It's not a natural or normal thing. No. So better schools figure out how to encourage accomplishment, not just achievement. And the difference is accomplishment gives you a rush of fulfillment from an activity that you've chosen so that you're absorbed in a topic outside yourself. This can give lasting happiness that can last throughout life. We all know what that's like. You know, if you love your stamp collection, if you love your weaving, your your quilt making, your golf, anything that you get really deeply immersed in because you want to do it, that that can last in, in happiness. It's finding a passion. Yeah. When we lose ourselves into an all-absorbing action, we become ourselves. I got that quote from one of the research and I thought it was really important, especially mm-hmm. for teens. Mm-hmm. Schools can help kids engage in projects that blend art, science, language arts, and history. And an example of that is the school where I'm on the board. I've mentioned it before, Synapse School in Menlo Park. It has every year a year-long project 
that guides curriculum. It's not their only thing that they do. They learn uh, they science and math and you know regular subjects, but they all in kindergarten to eighth grade study one person for the whole year, and they do it with some depth. They the, all the teachers come together to do that, and they learn the music of the time, uh, the art of the time, really get immersed in a time as well as the person. And the one person has to have impacted the world in a positive and authentic way. The, the person that is studied has to be robustly prepared for real world challenges. It isn't like things came easily to them. You'll see from the examples. One is Thich Nhat Hanh, a Vietnamese monk, Buddhist monk. Uh, well, he was alive in the Vietnamese war. He was a peace activist. That was not an easy time for a Buddhist monk. Uh, but he integrated his academic knowledge, the, the traditional things that we would study, with his creativity and his social emotional knowledge, like how to get along with people. He was very deeply aware of that. Um, he was also a prolific author, a poet, a teacher, historically recognized as the main inspiration for engaged Buddhism. A quote by Thich Nhat Hanh says, with mindfulness, you can establish yourself in the present in order to touch the wonders of life that are available in that moment. Isn't that powerful? And the children saw that on the wall when they came into school in the morning. I thought it was wonderful. Mm. Rachel Carson was an Amer another person they, the children studied all year. She was a Marine, American marine biologist, writer, and conservationist whose influential book, Silent Spring, written in 1962, and other writings are credited with advancing the global environmental movement. And I remember when I saw the uh, works of the children, they made a huge ocean, like 15 feet long and 10 feet high, and they painted all through the ocean the things that she talked about working together. She really had a sense of ecology when that was pretty new. Mm, what a beautiful image. Yeah. I remember her poetry in, in the 60s when I was young, um, though I was more like 19. <laughs> a quote from Rachel Carson is, those who, those who contemplate the beauty of the earth find reserves of strength will endure as long as life lasts. Mm. So she's somebody worth really learning about. And I was surprised when I looked at the projects that children do. She was active in the 60s and they were listening to 60s music. Well, that's really cool. <laughs> it's my music. <laughs> anyway, it comes to life like that. It's not just dry and put so briefly that you can't possibly understand the significance. Uh, teachers at Synapse have built their year-long curriculum around a varied set of people, both men and women, and they're aware of, of race and sex and other characteristics, uh, whether they were in science or uh, politics or whatever field. One was Desmond Tutu. They spent a whole year on him. They spent a year on Dolores Huerta, and she worked in uh, California and visited the school and was pleased to be featured. It was so nice to have her come and see how curious the children were with her. Another is Neil deGrasse Tyson, who I mentioned earlier, wrote about astrophysics for children. Leonardo da Vinci, the children made flying machines and other things that Leonardo, uh, they learned about Vitruvian man. And you can really go to town on these people. Another was Thomas Edison. And they learned about all his inventions. And Ben Franklin was another. 
Also, they studied Ruth Bader Ginsburg from the Supreme Court and Fred Rogers. Aren't they varied? And one was astronaut uh, Mae Jemison and so many others. But each one was for a whole year. So the school's been going for a while. And uh, there's a link to all of their uh, studies on the Synapse website, which I'll provide. Over the course of eight years, the children are immersed in the lives and times of fascinating people who embody and evoke curiosity. How could you not be curious about those people? I found Fred Rogers really interesting. I didn't like his show when I was a grown-up and he was talking very slowly to children. But when I saw the movie about him, I, I saw what a pioneer he was to do something that had not been done for children before. It takes a lot of planning to offer classes like this for children, but teachers and families can make a fascinating world for kids. Let them seek out images, explore new experiences, and increase their creative capacities. Make sure they have friends to work with so they can compare ideas. I've worked with young people who grew up immersed in projects like this over the years, and I see how they integrate varied approaches to life. They aren't just seeking the highest paid job, uh, though that often happens because they're so good at what they do. Children who have gotten immersed in satisfying projects often stay curious. They keep asking big questions not common in a textbook or a test-driven classroom. Can you talk more about the role of electronic devices? I know that's such a big issue for parents. Um, is too much time spent in high-stimulation games impairing our children's creativity and curiosity? You know, this especially interests me because I'm a creator of children's programs, like for decades. Um, I make learning games, but they still are on a screen. So I'm very interested in how much more compelling the games have been. They've been compelling for a long time. They're 3D. They're, uh, you, you have your own character. You're gorgeous. You can run and jump and play and uh, have a, a sword made of gems and um it, it's a vast new world that children play in. The games are visually stunning. They appeal to base common interests that are you know, common to all the children, acquiring, for example, the weapons made of, of crystals and killing random enemies that appear. And there, one little boy was killing my grandson. My grandson was crying. And I said, do you have to kill him? And he said, yeah, that's what the game is for. It's for killing. That's all I can do. I said, well, can you think of something else to do? Because he's really upset. He said, no, I can't. I got to kill. It's like, what? Um, wow. So um, we stopped playing and we went out and used the trampoline. <laughs> <outside. laughs> um, and also, I think he still remembers thinking about what else you might be able to do than uh, killing. They're, they're nine years old. They shouldn't be killing all the time. I think the kids are curious about what will come next in these games. There's a vast terrain they operate in, and there are real people that they might not know causing some of the action they see. But there's a great deal of repetition of the basic moves, wielding a sword or shooting and leaping and running. I'm concerned that if young children stay immersed in such virtual worlds, their brains will get so drenched in reward chemicals that regular life seems flat to them. They get a hit, 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 hit. It's just constant. And then they're like little addicts when you see their eyes. 
It's really, really sad. And I think it's something parents have to watch out for. Many parents uh, put a time limit on screen time. And I think there's ways to do that smartly. Like if you're watching uh, a National Geographic video with just stunning animals, that's different than just killing in a video game. And sometimes those are all merged together and I think they should be distinguished. But I also think, I know that in our family, we say first we have to do a whole bunch of things that are real before we even turn on the computer, like finish homework, of course. Um, I observe this uh, overstimulation in little boys, especially displaying features of addiction, and they don't feel well after hours of gameplay, but it's difficult for them to stop. So if I'm involved with them, I help them notice their own feelings, and they'll say, I need to go outside. Say, good idea. Um, But it shouldn't even come to that. Uh, But there, too, I think it's helpful to have them help make the decision so they don't just feel punished by the removal from the uh, addictive game. They should monitor their own selves if you can help them manage that and then not overdo it for themselves. Though it does, I think it takes guidance. Um, Also, it's important to offer stimulating things. Often I can see it if parents are trying to make dinner and their kids are bothering, they'll just put them in front of the TV or the video game so they can get something done. But I think it happens for too long. Uh, So I hope that we find real things, digging and and jumping and climbing trees and being in nature instead of just being on screens. Um, I've seen the little boys I'm around the most watching one video about how to play a game in YouTube while at the same time wearing headphones and talking with a friend inside it, the same game, at the same time. And we talk about multiplexing but or multitasking. Uh, the truth is we're going back and forth very quickly between things. Well, it's hard to go deep when you're just flipping back and forth like that. Um, and they're getting exhausted with dopamine and other internal chemical hits. Um, and it makes a lot of money, and that's why people create it. But um, I think we'll find out over time that there's great a great deal of harm that um, – should be dealt with in our society. I'm turning 80 in a few weeks and I'm starting a new venture. I'm very curious how it will work. I'm taking a course in chat GPT and trying it out for myself. I found out it had nothing to say about things I was interested in, which seems really odd. All right. There's no curiosity in it. It's absolutely flat. Um, also, I'm figuring out how to shoot TikTok videos And I'm recruiting a new team of curious people for a company that I'm starting doing conceptual math. And I don't see it being done. I see uh, procedural math. So if you're you're multiplying fractions, you just cross multiply. You have no idea why. Well, let's cut up a banana in half and then cut it in thirds to see that it makes six. And that's concrete and it's really memorable. You just don't have to remember a formula. You can actually apply it. So what we do is build a physical problem, sketch it as a gradual abstraction, write an equation about it where all the structure of the box and the sketch are still in front of us. Then we explain it to someone else and apply it in a new situation. So that build, sketch, write, explain, apply 
is how we do all of math. And when the kids do that uh, at Nueva School, they did that for years uh, in all of their math. And the entire school scored in the top one percentile, which I've never heard of for 30 mm. years. Um, and so that's what I'm going to offer to the world. Um, I heard from a brilliant head of a university that some people, when they're anxious, narrow their perspective and believe one set of facts. They just get real simple about things and then they can just uh, espouse it, you know, talk about it and be very firm about it. Well, that takes away the ambiguity and they can get over some of the anxiety, but they're not curious and it's not real satisfying. They get rigid and narrow. Other people tolerate ambiguity and endure the frustration of not having all the answers while they search new possible perspectives. I find it much more fun to do the latter. And I think most of us do. And it's something we can watch in ourselves if we get too narrow. See if we can bring in new perspectives and stay curious. We need to give ourselves time and permission to stay curious. Often we're in too much of a rush. We need to find friends and colleagues who are curious. I find ways to be around children who overflow with curiosity. I can count on it. They just come that way. <laughs> I, I tutor kids, which I've done my whole life. I don't care what, if I'm the president of everything at a company, I still tutor kids because it's so much fun. That's super. Yeah, yeah you've been such an in, innovator and entrepreneur, and you've worked on so many tech startups in Silicon Valley, and you've consulted around the world. Can you speak about the value of curiosity in adults? Yes, I'd love to. But a great joy has been working with people that are better than me at everything. And they're curious themselves and they love to work with each other, which is how I get them. Um, we play off one another and life continues to surprise and delight us. There's more research about adult curiosity than children's because it's a dynamic force in the workplace, especially among leaders. I tend to think of children because I've spent my whole life working with children. Actually, I've done some adult learning too, but uh, I favor children's learning to tell the truth. Um, one of the interesting articles is by Rachel Powers, a professor at UC Berkeley, who states that leaders who embrace curiosity create an environment where employees feel safe to explore new ideas, to take risks and to challenge the status quo. A lot of people live with the status quo and that's their guiding principle and that's all they can extend to. But if we can remain curious, we can have transformative growth and change. First include curiosity as a value in hiring. Choose curious people. Then leaders of the organization should model curiosity by continuously emphasizing specific learning goals. Employees should be allowed to explore and broaden their interests, encourage and reward creativity and playfulness. The organization be, should be open to change and support some level of risk-taking. Encourage the questions, why, what if, and how might we, every day, challenge assumptions, explore different perspectives, implement a no idea is bad idea policy. Did you know that at Google, everybody is given time to do a project of their own unrelated to their work assigned goals. And that keeps them really interested. And that's where a lot of the innovation comes from. And so their curiosity kept alive. It's, it's really a wonderful thing. And they probably finish their other projects more uh, completely and fully because they have this time to pursue something that really interests them. 
Rachel also discusses the importance of overcoming fear, the fear of being judged, the fear of losing respect, the fear of losing one's standing with the others. Leaders tend to believe that they need to provide answers rather than ask questions. We need to reframe that perspective, our perspective on that. Great. Do you have any uh, closing thoughts? I just want to tell you that I enjoyed thinking about curiosity in fresh ways with you. Um, I was curious how this podcast would play out. And now I know I've never done a podcast before. And now I have. <laughs> I learned new perspectives and hope that continues throughout my life. Because I'm only 80. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you so much, Dr. McCormick, uh, for joining us today. And I just, I just want to close with something that Indira Gandhi said. The power to question is the basis of all human progress. So listeners, I hope that you'll carry a little bit more of that power today. Until next week, this is Dr. Camille and Healthy Wealthy You. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Healthy Wealthy You. Have a question but weren't able to get on the show today? Join us next week and call in. Until then, hold that inspiration.